That would have been a hell of a way to start this. That would have been great. Ah, now you'll never know what the joke was. Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is actually, I just learned, getting people therapy and they get to write it off on their taxes. So like, if you donate a lot and I give you therapy, not only are you supporting yourself and someone else's sessions, but you're also getting to write that off on your taxes. Don't tell the IRS, I told you that. Um, but yeah, so we're basically paying for people to get therapy if they're struggling with STI stigma. Uh, are there any announcements? Yes, thank you for everybody who took the time to take that long survey that I did. It was roughly 50 questions and um, we got a lot of good information about it. I wanted to get a thousand people to take it and we got 1,148, which in the survey world is great because we have that margin of error. Um, given not everyone completed every question, a lot of people wrote their own stuff in. Um, so yeah, the negative, positive margin of error. There's a better word for it. I can't think of what it is right now, but that was very useful. So everyone who took the time to do that, like I really, really appreciate you. So <clears throat> this will probably be the last time that I talk about the survey before the episode where I break down what the results were and talk through some of the narratives that go together when you pair different aspects of the data. All right. So today we got Jordan, Jordan Donnell. That's me. Is that what we're going by? That's what we're going All by right. today. So, um, I don't really know where to start. Like, you host a podcast. Yesterday was your one-year anniversary. Congratulations. Vaginas, vibrator. No, I, I keep mixing it up with the letters. Vaginas, vulvas. Vulvas, vaginas, and vibrators. Vibrators. Is vibrators Oh, now you got me messed up. <laughs> vaginas, vulvas, and vibrators. So, in my head, I went alphabetical order. So every time I, I see it, but in my head, I'm like, vaginas, vibrators, vulvas. And I was like, no, it's not in order. Why'd you go in that order? Is there a reason you went in that order? It just is what popped to my head after days of trying to find a name. Yeah. I, yeah. That's just how it popped up. I don't know. You got to tell me what inspired you to not just start a podcast, because I think everybody has a thought, I should do a podcast, or someone gives them a nudge, they're like, you should do a podcast. So what made you specifically go with what your um, what your topics are? So that goes back a long time. When I was in like middle school and high school, I was kind of always the girl that my friends went to to talk about like their bodies, what's happening, birth control, period stuff. Like I was always that girl. And then in college, I went to like my first peer romance party. Are you familiar with peer romance? Is that where you open up a bunch of like sex toys and... It's relationship enhancement items. Oh. including toys and bath and beauty products. What a word. What yes. a phrase. Yes. <laughs> so I started doing that when I was 21 and they provided lots of education and information. And then I went to PA school where I learned more about the body and I PA. learned... Oh, physician's assistant. Well, it, physician assistant, but they changed the name last week to physician associate. Oh, okay. But we'll call it PA. Okay. The acronyms at least stay the same. And... When I was in school, I kind of used my business, my peer romance business to help support me. But what I learned is that a lot of my clients did not know about how their body worked and had a lot of questions about their body. So what I ended up doing was using my medical information and sharing that 
with my clients in a private space. And I kept being told like, you need to put this on a more public platform so that other people have access to it. And COVID, perfect opportunity to create this passion project to help other women be more aware of their bodies and feel more supported and less alone. Yeah. It's very interesting. Your response to COVID was creation, right? Uh, I know that this has been a struggle for a lot of people and I don't want to downplay anyone's experience. I don't want to you know, discredit anyone who's lost someone or the people that aren't here and other struggles that have come from just navigating this pandemic. But I agree with you um, in that this was a perfect opportunity to blank. Blank being self-reflect, create, grow, evolve, uh, challenge whatever your status quo has been, whatever narratives you've been telling yourself over the years. Um, Because I can relate to that just from last year being like a time where I was just at home, like we couldn't do anything. And being a personal trainer, my place of employment was just shut down, period. So with that time that I otherwise wouldn't have had, I was more able to go deeper into the podcast and going into the nonprofit functions. So really being able to start to front the uh, or really push the efforts of the fundraising and getting donations and implementing the processes of getting people into therapy after their diagnosis. Y'all ain't gotta be quiet. Like it's it's. <laughs> oh, is it, is it recorded? Yeah, it's recording. Oh. You can say hi. You wanna say hi? Hey. hey. <laughs> uh, we had a hotel, so those support groups that I rec- rarely mention, really. Um, here's one of the social ones. So Jordan and I are just in her room and her roommates just came in to grab stuff while we were recording. So I don't, I told you, I don't edit this. <laughs> it is real. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this has been quite the opportunity. So for me, I've been fortunate enough to have had a therapist. I've been seeing my therapist for well over a year and a few months. And we actually just had our last session on third, no, Wednesday, Wednesday this past week uh, was my last session. And it was just kind of like this graduation process where I was able to reflect and look back over the entirety of this pandemic and see not just where I'm at now, but like where I was when this pandemic started. So uh, I offer this for people to take the opportunity to do that assessment. Yes, it still sucks. I know Canada's still shut down and I know there's a lot of just COVID fatigue in general. And uh, here in the United States, a lot of things have been open for a while and there's been this transition more so into the normalizing of not wearing masks anymore. Uh, So with all of this going on, uh, it, it shows us not necessarily in the space of time that's passed, but like the amount of experiences that have come between now or between the start of the pandemic and then right now. So it's really important to take those opportunities to reflect because as we go back into the world or transition into whatever this new normal is going to be, no one is going to be the same person. And if you happen to be the same person, then good for you. That means you were in a very good position to begin with. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to offer that to people, um, considering that you and I have a shared experience of this having been a good opportunity to do things that 
we're passionate about and explore our passions. Yeah. So I guess I've been like putting this off. You you sure you're ready for this? I'm ready for this. All right. So um, this is the first time I'm talking to you about your herpes experience in detail. You interviewed me on your podcast about my experience and we talked about that. So we get to flip the we get to flip the script. Okay. <laughs> uh first off, what made you decide to go ahead and be open on this podcast episode? I think that it's so important to share your experience because you never know a who might relate and feel more supported. But I think that people learn from other people sharing. And the more we talk about it, the more more people feel safe and comfortable. And the other aspect of that is as a person that works in the medical field, we're going to probably talk about this some, where we're not really taught as medical professionals anything about herpes, really, but STIs and giving that diagnosis and things. So there's a whole other aspect from a medical perspective and kind of what that has been like being a medical professional. Um, You said something interesting in the beginning there. Um, You said that uh, it was safe. Safe was the word. And what I'm finding is that in people sharing their experiences, what it also offers is when you have that safe space to share and other people are able to listen, there's healing that takes place. When people are able to feel heard, listened to, there's the opportunity for healing to occur. So it's really, 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 really powerful for people who otherwise may not have even ever shared their experience with anyone else to be able to have this safe space to anonymously or um, with the confidence that their identities aren't going to be revealed, come on here and just openly share their experiences. I had someone, um, I've been sharing about crap disclosures uh, over the past two days on the H on my chest Instagram page. And someone reached out and they were like, you know, it's somebody who's about to disclose tomorrow. This is not making me feel better about myself. And I just had to explain to her, it's like, well, this, all of the experiences that have been shared on something positive for positive people aren't all positive. My experiences aren't all positive. And if I were to only show the good, like that would completely downplay the real lived experiences of people who are navigating life with this virus from their diagnosis to disclosures to the seeking of support and dating and relationships and sex. So it's important to have all of that out there because honestly, that's where we relate. We relate in that shadow repressed side of our experiences so that we can heal together. Now, it can be toxic and perpetuate this cycle of negativity, but it's more so about the relativity than the negativity. So being able to relate through those negative experiences we're able to see, all right, we're not alone. It's the same thing when you're diagnosed. The first thing you do when you realize it's not just you, you get excited. You get a little bit inspired. You get driven. You want to help. You want to get help. And you want to just do different. You know, Not to say like better or worse, but you want to do something different. And so being in that space of being able to see the realities of the people around you, that they're having similar experiences, I think that offers us an opportunity to see an overall threshold of where we are and where we can be. Because if I just saw people talking about, oh, every time I disclose, it goes well, here's another good one, here's another one, here's another one. 
I'd be turned off by that because that's not my lived experiences. How you got a hundred percent disclosure success rate, um, and like I and other people just have zero, right? So it's about the real lived experiences that makes us feel safe, supported, and offers us the opportunity to heal. And so I say all of that to just let you know, like that's what you're doing right now, especially being somebody who's in the medical community, because people I've spoken to who are. Um, in different medical positions, they don't want to disclose because of colleagues. Um, I forget the word. There's a word for this um, where when you disclose to someone like a patient, right, that like can discredit you, even though that's an opportunity for them to connect and be like, oh my God, so you do know what I'm going through. I don't remember what that word was, but there's a thing. So, um, you being able to do this is also really helpful to me and what it is that I'm doing here because I think that it offers an opportunity for healthcare providers to, you know, disclose perhaps to coworkers or to their patients and be able to reference these resources that are being created through what has become something positive for positive people and all of the partner organizations, accounts and support groups, communities that are um that we uplift and support. So kudos to you for doing this. And I'm ready to hear about your experience from start to finish. Okay. Well, I don't even know where to start, I guess. Um, All right. How long were you diagnosed? We can go through this. We can do this the old school way. We can do that. So I was diagnosed in September, 2020. Oh shit. During the pandemic? During the pandemic. Oh, Oh. like literally right when I reached out to you. So this is, this is what's interesting is that, I was doing an STI series on my podcast. In August, I had recorded an episode with a friend of mine who is positive and got that episode all ready to release. And then two weeks later, I got my diagnosis before I released her our episode together. Um, and then that's when I got my diagnosis while all of this was going on. So I was looking for resources for myself when I came across you and was like, oh, my podcast needs this. I, I needed to get you on mine because you just have so much to offer. And finding you was probably the best thing that happened for me when it came to my diagnosis and being able to move forward like the fastest and come to acceptance and um, not sit in a negative space. All right. So you as a medical professional, someone who is aware of what resources are available, you're able to find the science and the data and the information that you would think people would need and receive from a healthcare provider. Why is it that a podcast, like some dude with a podcast, was able to be more valuable to you in navigating your diagnosis than what you learned, than the people around you, than the resources that you would have known to go to? So interestingly enough, I don't have any resources for my patients prior to this. Like I had no resources. We didn't have resources as an office. I was working in primary care at the time. There was nothing. There was nothing. So I went to social media right away because I know how Instagram works. I've met lots of wonderful people through Instagram. And that was just kind of right where I went. And so... I don't really have resources in the medical world and in school we weren't taught anything so I really didn't know a whole lot 
And when I was looking online, you don't find a lot of good information online at all. Like there's just nothing good there. And you have to know the right people or like you have to know the right places to go to get the information. This for me. I'm writing an episode title on my leg, The Relativity of Negativity. Mm. (laughs) Um, So Mm. now you have this resource and social media, I guess this is a good plug for the survey. Like what I found is that more people have found the resources. They didn't know what they needed. Uh, 90 plus percent of people when they were diagnosed, they didn't know what resources they needed. A very slim percent of people, even after taking the survey, still haven't found the resource that they needed. So while a very small fraction of people are struggling the most with finding resources that they need, there is a massive number of people who don't know what they need when they get their diagnosis. So to be able to just offer something like just a finger point in the right direction, you know, it's on us to take the steps ourselves. So when we get that diagnosis, if someone is prepared to present just something like, I don't really know what to tell you because I'm not in the same boat. Uh, I can tell you this science stuff, but here's going to be a useful bit of information for you with someone who has been where you are for a while or even like just offering up the podcast or offering up videos, right? Because on the survey, so many people marked that they got their um, support information, found out what they needed from social media. So online videos, social media, podcasts, these are the things that this, these are the places where people are getting their information. So imagine, even if you're someone who's newly diagnosed and you have, let's go with the two extremes. One extreme is I don't want to deal with this at all. I don't want to talk to anybody about it. I just want to go home and I want to just be asleep, right? And then on the other end, you're inspired. You want to go out and jump into herpes education, activism and advocacy, and you want to share resources and be a support uh, leader and community leader and you get the tools that you need to do either of those. So if you are depressed, you have access to mental health, mental health services and someone or people who can talk to you or support groups. So if doctors are able to just slide that to you, you can take the information and do that. And on the other extreme, if you're inspired, then you can be given consistent, accurate information that if you're going to share stuff, it'll be consistent. And you can also get mental health support as well because doing the advocacy thing is amazing, yet People can do a lot more harm than healing by just simply not being in the right headspace themselves. So I often talk about me being an example. I navigated my diagnosis for four years before I even started the podcast. And what started this for me was seeing that there were people who wanted to kill themselves after their diagnosis. So it was just like, all right, well, that's not where I'm at. So I'll interview people who are living normal lives about their diagnosis and post it up for people to find. Right. And even over the last four years, I've said to people, hey, it's not that bad, which is the worst thing you can say to somebody who's going through suicide ideation. And then there's been other F ups that have happened along the way. Um, And even with me having had a therapist over the last year and a few months, there have been things that I've noticed like, oh, okay, this probably wasn't the most healthy thing to say. This wasn't helpful. This wasn't healing. So even me being someone who's been here for so long without that professional help, support, and um, resources to keep myself in alignment, I can still do more harm, regardless of how much good is being done. 
uh, through this platform, there's still harm being done. And I recognize that now. I didn't recognize it when I started. <laughs> so a lot of people jumping into this, if you don't have that, like not everyone's built for people DMing them and being like, oh my God, you know, I want to, uh, you know, God forbid people hear this, but like I want to end my life or I'm depressed. Like tell me I'm pretty essentially, like give me validation. That's what a lot of this stuff can become. And if you become overwhelmed after offering support to people like this and then you disappear, there's more harm being done in that Mm. as well. So all of that just to say the impact of having resources available is going to not only support STD prevention efforts, but also intervening at, you know, potential new cases of people who get their diagnosis and don't know how to disclose. So I can't tell you how many people just have not disclosed uh, and why they haven't disclosed being because they just simply don't know how. So while this is a conversation that perhaps, you know, is more supported and upheld and uplifted in support groups and spaces where there are other people who share this diagnosis, it would be super useful to remove a lot of the barriers that are in place that keep people from finding support, such as like anonymity, because people are afraid of people finding out that they have herpes. So it makes support groups really challenging to find. So if we're able to have a trusted connection between healthcare providers and uh, the people who receive their diagnosis, imagine how much more uh, mental health alleviation we can um, we can provide like a lot of the struggles that people have with their mental health. If we can eliminate those, like that's not only suicide prevention, that's STD prevention, right? So stepping off my soapbox here, because <laughs> I'll do that throughout the whole podcast. I, I got to let this be you. So you said that you were getting your, you got your diagnosis August, September between that episode. Um, what was going on for you around that time? Like what were your first symptoms? So this is actually a really funny story. I had gone on a trip to see my family in Minnesota and went and got, you know, a Brazilian wax because I was getting ready to go back to California. I was seeing somebody and um, I got back to California and I, I had this little bump and it, it felt weird. And I'm like, hmm, this is weird. Okay. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I masturbated too much because I had gone like five days without my vibrator when I was in Minnesota. So I was like, oh, maybe I masturbated too much. And I was, um, so I just had this little bump and then I took pictures of it and I sent it to one of my best friends who she's also, she's a doctor. And I was like, hey, what are your thoughts? And um, she was like, well, you know, it, it could be herpes. She's also positive or, you know, Maybe, you know, you were just a little aggressive with your vibrator. She's like, but just go get tested so that you know. And I'm like, okay, okay, fine. So I call up one of my coworkers and I'm like, can you put this order in for me? So I didn't actually go physically see a doctor. I just hit up a friend, had my, had my medical assistant draw my blood. And I'm like, don't ask any questions, just take my blood. And um, so then the results came back and it was positive. And the doctor, when I had asked her to order these labs... She was like, uh, she made some comment about, hopefully you don't have the gift that keeps on giving. And that was the first thing that was said to me. And so I got the labs and I had seen them before she told me that they were in. So I already knew. And um, I was angry. I was so angry. And I have 
to this day, I don't even know where it came from. I was going to ask you if you were angry at someone or if you were just angry at yourself or what? I was angry at the person that I was seeing, but he's negative. Well, Like we you know. saw the paperwork or he just told you that? He just told me that. Okay. But I, I am going to trust people that they're telling me the truth. If they want to lie, that's on them. That's on their conscience. But, you know, I assume that you were being upfront and honest with me. And if you aren't, that's not on you. But... So I was just really angry and I called, same day, I called a couple of my girlfriends and I'm like, you guys, what, what happened? Like, what's going on? And they're like, it'll be okay. They're like, I've slept with people that have herpes before. And I'm like, you have? And they're like, yeah, you'll be just fine. Your sex life will be fine. I'm like, okay, cool. But I was still just angry because I didn't know where it came from and, and just kind of confused, like super overwhelmed. And then probably like two weeks later is when you and I first talked. And I was looking for resources because I didn't know anything about it. What my perception was is that I'm going to have these lesions the rest of my life unless I take medication. I never realized that how they go away, that you may not have them all the time. I had no clue. I had no clue what I was getting into or what I wasn't getting into, really. Um, When you first found out and you got your diagnosis did you get on medication right away she sent in a prescription for me um but I chose not to I picked it up but I didn't take it because I was like let me just see what happens because I was like so did you get the as needed or daily um it's written as daily but I take it however I feel like taking it oh no no (laughs) I understand that because I only take it if I have symptoms Um, And there have been times where I've been with partners who don't have herpes. And what I would do is just like, if I know we're going to see each other, I'll take um, like half a pill over the course of that weekend or whatever it was going to be. And that was just like, I I don't even know if that really worked. It gave me peace of mind. It gave them peace of mind. But like, what I find is that people don't care. Like I took that unnecessary precaution just because it offered me peace of mind, but to be able to just disclose to someone and offer them, you know, the objective, here's what, here's what it is. You know, people, we have to give people more credit. They know, they may know more than we give them credit for. They may know less than we give them credit for, but I always use willingness to understand or ask questions as a metric for whether or not somebody's going to be a good partner. So if you go out on the day, and you can ask questions that will determine if someone's open-minded or closed-minded. And typically, closed-minded people are, in fact, stuck in their ways, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the measure metrics to use for, okay, this is somebody that I would have a pleasant experience with. I'll go ahead and disclose to them and offer them the opportunity to show me how they receive this information. So maybe they ask more questions. Maybe they tell you they have it too. Maybe they've slept with someone who has it. Maybe it's not a big deal, or maybe it is. And on that spectrum of potential responses, like we, we gotta be okay with that. Uh, your doctor responding the way that they did. Uh, that, that, was, that made me cringe. It's cringeworthy, <laughs> yeah. And it's so common yeah. that that's how providers respond. And that's where the shame and stigma behind STIs really starts. Like that added comment was just so unnecessary. She's a good friend of mine and and I don't hold it against her. But at the same time, like that just wasn't necessary. 
I wonder if that friendliness enables us to make these jokes or like comments about herpes specifically because with HIV, yes, we're at a place now where you can get on treatment, you cannot pass it on and you can not have symptoms as long as you're on top of your treatments, right? You equals you. Um, with herpes, that's not the case. So given the impact that HIV has had on people throughout history, you can't make that a stigmatized condition. While it still is, you don't see HIV jokes at all. Like you don't see that in comedy or anything because there are advocates, people who've lost people, people who have loved ones who have HIV that will not allow that. For us, herpes is so stigmatized, we can't have that. We can't have that community stand up and speak up for us, at least not openly and publicly. Like, I've come across many sex positive people, people who are in uh, the non monogamy or un- into non monogamy or who are into kink and BDSM, who are regulars at having this conversation, and they'll stick up for people. Um, in their networks and in their friend groups and if they're inviting new people into their um, dating pool sex life they'll not allow that so in these taboo spaces this taboo topic is not taboo there has to be a shift where we're able to have conversations and share our experiences with people around us who can become advocates for us on our behalf if they're out at a bar and they hear somebody make a herpes joke hey man that's not cool like one of my buddies has that and they're not okay with it or like it's it's been something that they've struggled with for a while yet they're better about it at this point because it's something positive for positive people but um (laughs) I, i i can't let you make that joke and i always use this example of Take the LGBT community, you know, like I have friends who are part of that community or people around me, clients, people who are close to me and important to me who are part of the LGBT community. While I'm not part of it, I still don't allow like shit jokes to be made around me without saying something or speaking up. Um, And then the advocacy efforts also extend into that. So you don't have to be a part of the community or you don't have to advertise that you are a part of it in order to do what's right. In order to, <clears throat> I try so hard to ride that out, in order to um, in order to stand up for people, in order to do what's right and speak up for what's right and speak out against what's wrong. And that's what we need more of. We just need more advocates behind us and we'll get that same support. You said that the first thing you did was you told a couple of your friends and you were met with support. A lot of people don't want to tell their friends. And I I think that like if you can't tell your friends something like this, then you may not have the best of friends. Like your friend group may not be for you. So it's important because those are the only people who can remind us who we were before we got our diagnosis. That that 10 minutes before you got that phone call or that second before you noticed your first symptom. These are the people who have the opportunity to offer us up the most support. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny that you bring up like the, the jokes because even this last week I go to twerk class and one of our songs, she always says, you know, think about who you're dancing for. And I've danced for Usher for the last five years. And one of the girls was like, well, you better be careful because Usher has the herp. And I was just like, okay. And (laughs) like, really? Like, was that necessary? And 
who knows if he does or not, but does it matter? Right. That means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things <clears throat> about <throat> any person. Any person or their character. Ooh, that is bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's too and, early. And I was going to say, yeah, in our defense, it is really early. Like, we woke up, I worked out, and then just headed straight over here. So there will be, that's why you heard so many of those. <laughs> um, so you said the guy that you dated didn't have it. So Correct. you asked him, how'd you approach that conversation? Well, the same day I called him and I was like, hey. Oh, so you were like, hey, mother. <laughs> no, I was just, well, because what I did know is that it can show up later on. So, and I've had a good life. I've had lots of fun. So, um, I wasn't really sure. Like, maybe, maybe it's been there a while. Maybe it's been there since college. That week in particular, I had a lot of stress at work. And... Um, I don't know if that high level, like I haven't had that high of stress in years. So I don't know if that triggered it or what, but I called him up and I was just like, Hey, so here's the deal. This is what's up. And he was like, Oh, well, I've, I've never had anything like that. And I'm like, well, have you been tested? Well, I go and get tested all the time for everything. And I was like, but everything doesn't mean everything. And you have to be very specific. And I hear that all the time you know, I'm in a bunch of PA communities and a lot of the people are like, well, I'm not going to test them for herpes unless they're having symptoms. And I've fought that battle so hard. And it's like, why don't people have the right to know if they have something going on? And for some people, their symptoms present so differently that than the standard traditional lesions that they may be having these weird pains or these weird, weird discharge or these weird things going on that's actually herpes, but their doctor is refusing to test them for it because they don't have lesions. Yeah. I'm curious to know your opinion on what things could look like if there was an annual HSV screening with one consistent test that simply says positive or negative. I just feel like people have the right to know about their body and what's happening. And we have a test available. I understand it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. The strep test isn't perfect. The COVID test isn't perfect. Nothing's perfect. But we have the right to know about our own bodies. And why are we being held back from information about ourselves? I find it interesting because herpes isn't always an STI. So we look at cold sores, HSV primarily one, being an oral presentation of the virus mm -hmm. that can be passed on to the genitals. So if we test for herpes, we're testing for it in a body. doesn't matter where it shows up, it's HSV. So why is it that because it becomes type two or, well, I know why, um, given that nobody wants to make the association of an STI with children, but like when little Tommy, who got cold sores at 10, grows up and becomes a teenager, let's, to be politically correct, let's say he goes off to college, he's having sex, he's exploring because he wasn't given great sex education. He doesn't know that mm -hmm. his oral herpes can be passed on to someone's genitals, and then that person who gets their genitals, uh, who has HSV present on their genitals, now is a victim of the stigma, who is now um, susceptible to mental health struggles. And people don't wanna, I, I'm finding that like, that conversation just doesn't wanna be had, or people aren't wanting to have that conversation at all. So how do we get 
to a place where we understand that that early on sex education is going to determine the trajectory of a person after, you know, they go in for testing, especially if they test positive, because so much of that early on sex education, it it omits a lot of relationship management skills, Mm -hmm. like identifying abuse, saying no, being able to hear a no, asking for what you need, and then being able to seek support in the event that things aren't going right or well for you. So that may look like reaching out to an organization or a person when you're in an abusive situation. Or if you do get diagnosed with herpes, then you know that you have these different spaces that you can go into and just seek out support. You don't have to deal with these kinds of things on your own. That's really what the emphasis needs to be on because so much of sexual health is mental health. You can teach kids boundaries and relationship management and everything that I just discussed, consent, and not even talk about sex. But when kids go off to begin having sex, that's going to be a default um, communication structure that they have in place to talk about sex. So if adults don't want to talk to kids about sex, talk to kids about boundaries. Let's talk about consent and body autonomy mm-hmm. and what it means to hear no cuz even as adults like we don't we don't like to hear no. We don't like rejection. And even experiencing rejection, which is something so common after a diagnosis because now, you know, we have this thing to disclose to people and we give them a choice that often was not given to us. So we can take it so personally that, you know, it looks like, oh, it's not fair. You know, why am I going around here being ethical and giving people a choice when I wasn't given one? And we don't want to have that thought process go through a person's mind, especially when the simple solution is to give youth the proper tools they need in order to discuss um, sexual health and sex, period, and just how to manage and navigate relationships. That is so important for adolescents to get that information. I think that would change a lot for for them growing up and just in relationships, period. You know, sexual assault, all of those things, learning about consent. I mean, I recently had somebody on my podcast talking about sexual assault, and one of the biggest things is we're not taught, A, hearing the word no is not commonly known, but then B... Um, we're not taught how to get consent. What does consent look like? And we got to start teaching that before we get to college. We're not having, most people, a lot of people, aren't having sex in college. They're having sex in high school, middle school. We have to get that information way earlier, way earlier. Yeah. And then like ignoring, you know, teen pregnancies, like we can't, we can't do that. Like that girl in middle school that's pregnant, you know, nothing against her, but like, she just wasn't given the tools that she needed in order to make choices that were alternative to what she had available to her at the time. So same thing with the guy who got her pregnant, you know, if he were to have known, like, like, I need to wear condoms, or this is what safe sex looks like, or putting that little drop of lube in the condom before you put it on. Like, these kinds of things all are prevention. Why are we learning them after it's already happened? Like, we learn through experience what we should be learning through education, right? So, uh, I did it again. Um, <laughs> your, 
<laughs> I'm just gonna ask questions. I don't want to add to anything anymore because I did. I, this has been like a, a you've been more of a co-host than a guest. <laughs> but I think that's also just like a natural flow because like we have rapport with one another, yeah. so we can just like bounce these ideas off of one another and talk through it pretty well. We can. Yeah. All right. So I'm still shocked at the fact that this is so new for you and you were able to handle it in the way that you did. Obviously, your medical experience, your background has supported you in being prepared for this. But like along the way, what has discussing this with partners looked like for you as a healthcare, as a medical professional? So honestly, I was really shocked when I started telling people about it. The first person I told about, he was cool, whatever. He's like, that doesn't change anything. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I know lot, like at that current moment, I wasn't interested in sex. I was feeling very ashamed and just needed to process all of it. And then probably about six weeks after that, I met somebody uh, when I was on vacation and, um, I disclosed to him and he's like, okay, yeah, I dated somebody. He's like, do you take your vowel tracks? And I was like, hmm, no never even thought about it like never even crossed my mind and he knew a lot about it he had dated somebody who had herpes and so he kind of educated me and then that yeah I got a lot of education from my partners and then the next person I disclosed to he's a nurse a ICU nurse and also dated somebody who had herpes and he like knew all about it and I was like okay whoa um, so we need to date medical people. <laughs> well, not all of us know about it, though. Like, even for myself, like, I got most of my information from social media, but then these guys that I was dating who had already experienced that. And then um, as far as, like, disclosing goes, I've, I've found that a lot of people know more information than I give them credit for. I've had a ton of people that I've also disclosed to who know nothing about it and are totally clueless. So I've also had to do a lot of educating and sharing, which can be exhausting at times when there's so many questions about how answers. Yep. Yeah. Uh, And disclosure fatigue is real. Super real. (laughs) Um, Do you find yourself being the person who initiates the conversation often? Oh, yeah. Mm. I usually initiate... um, for me personally, I would like to have some sort of rapport with you before I love using like the stars method. Like, what is our intention? And if our intentions, shout out to Evelyn Dacker. Yes, if our intent, if our intentions don't line up from the beginning, then there's no point in disclosing. There's no point in continuing our situationship. Um, but I love that word. Me too. Me too. <laughs> That's how I describe a lot of things. And then. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. Oh, no. You were just saying, like, the STARS model works for you. And mm-hmm. if your relationship intention doesn't align, and there's no point in disclosing. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were adding to it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's uh, so episode 99, Integrative Disclosure with Dr. Evelyn Dacker. There is going to be a STARS workshop in collaboration with Something Positive for Positive People that is going to more so highlight disclosure in the stars format so if you want to join that you can ooh, just keep up with me uh especially on social media it is coming up soon 
Yeah, it's coming up real soon. I might have to drop this episode Friday <laughs> so that people know. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes so that you can just click on it. Um, the proceeds are going to go to something positive for positive people. So if you make a donation or if you pay for a ticket, your ticket purchase is going to go, I think, 50%. Ah. Half of it goes to us, at least half of it. So you'll be supporting more people getting therapy and you'll support like all of the other things that are happening behind the scenes here. So uh, what's changed for you since your diagnosis? It sounds like you had about six weeks before you were wanting to be sexually active again. During that time, what did what did it look like for you during that six weeks of non partnered sexually activeness wow what a phrase well what that <laughs> look like so <clears throat> it probably was actually less than that because there was another guy that i was seeing i was seeing a couple people okay and <laughs> um i disclosed to him and he was very angry and i he's the one that I talked to you about on my podcast, but indirectly talked to you about it. He was very angry. And then like two weeks later, he called and he's like, okay, so I'm cool with it now. I just needed to process it. And then, um, so it probably was only about four weeks or so. But in that time frame, I was doing a lot of like self-reflection. And I will say what's changed at this point is that I am having much better sex because the communication is there you're talking about what you want what you need and it's just so it's so much better at this point it's it's better sex than I've ever had and I feel like I've had more sex in the last eight months than I had in the last like four years so <laughs> that's it that was the experience for me so shortly after my diagnosis I masturbated a lot I was just like man I ain't never gonna have sex again let me masturbate so much that I'm not horny anymore I, I kid you not like those I feel so me. sorry for my grandma because like I I had like you could probably wring out the towel how much I came in these towels and she'd like randomly do my laundry because that's what I was living with when I was diagnosed I was like fuck I hope she didn't find that that like rag yeah I used to just try to keep it under the bed oh let me stop I'm, t- I'm talking too much <laughs> but that was how I responded I was like oh okay well just let me masturbate so much that I'm not horny anymore. I know a lot of people go through this period of not really wanting to touch themselves or being disconnected from their bodies. But I was just like, nah, this motherfucker still work. We going to use it, <laughs> you know. Um, but what did change for me was, I mean, I've always masturbated. That's never been a thing where, like, I stopped. Or I would say I did it more after my diagnosis because I assumed that I would have less sex. Mm -hmm. But once I put myself out there, I have had more sex. And early on after my diagnosis, the sex wasn't the best because it was just more like, oh, my God, thank God, this girl likes me. Now I got to, like, do my best to please her. And that was what sex was for me. After a while, like I met, I I talked about Chelsea before, like Chelsea was probably one of the first people who freed me. (laughs) She was like, what did she say? And this isn't a kid friendly podcast. I got to make this explicit. Um, I said, or she, we were having sex and I like was going for a really long time. And she was like, once I finally got off, she was like, I felt like you wanted to get off a lot more. 
you can come as much as you want. And I was like, I felt this wave of just like relief come off of me because I thought that that's what sex was supposed to be. Sex is supposed to be 42 minutes and 17 seconds from (laughs) the time clothes come off to the time where the orgasm happens, right? For the male at that. So like, and in the process, the longer you have sex, the more likely it is that a woman's going to enjoy herself. This was the narrative to that point. And when she told me that it was like, oh shit, like I can do what I want to do. Like I can do what I like. I can communicate that. And so sex became different at that point. And fuck, what was I, 28 years old? (laughs) Like that's when sex started to get good for me. So if you're someone who's listening to this and you feel like your sex life is over and you're only like politically correct, 19 years old, between 19 and shit, even if you're 50, like... You can reset your, you can reboot your sex life, revamp your sex life with just communication. Like all that masturbating, I knew what I liked, especially because I watched so much porn. It was like, oh, damn, I want to do that. I want to try this. And being able to communicate like, hey, I want to try this, whether you know you like it or don't know if you like it. Just the communication in itself is sexy. I can't tell you how much time, how many times like I've spoken to someone about sex and the conversation being something that is mutually like turning us on. Like I'm like, oh well, I'm hesitant, but I really want you to blank. I'm gonna just say blank because I don't want to like give too much shit away about people. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, I never thought about that. Like that sounds hot. Let's do it. Let's try it. So the communication has had to happen. Like this was. Herpes has been the catalyst for forced communication in a way that, you know, if you don't have the communication, sex is not as good. Like, I can't, if I don't disclose, I can't even get a full-blown erection because in the back of my mind, I'm like, "Uh, I need to say this. I need to tell somebody. I need to tell this person this. And for women, it's just been, the women that I've spoken to, it's been less enjoyable because they're in their heads about it. So when you can be in your body and not in your head about it, you tend to have much more pleasant sexual experiences and being able to communicate is an aspect of that. I did it again. Damn. Well, and for me, like, I went down a long sexual exploration journey and learned so much about what I really want in the bedroom that I had no clue even existed. And so, in all honesty, I'm thankful for this journey because it's really helped me get the most out of life. That was so cheesy. We can't end on that. <laughs> um, and we, if you've been listening to this for a while, you know that's not everybody's experience. But yeah. for the most part, this has been, if it wasn't herpes, it would be something else, right? So it may be a the exiting of a toxic relationship. It may be mm-hmm. an accomplishment. But like for many of us, this was the catalyst to our better communication this might have been the catalyst to our sex education to learning about boundaries and whatnot like getting into kink and bdsm for Mm -hmm. instance like i always tell people like kink and bdsm is the adult version of the sex education that we should have received as youth and when people hear that i'm sure like you think 50 shades are great it's not bdsm that's entertainment right what i mean by bdsm being how we, uh, the adult version of the sex education that we should have received as youth is that in the BDSM community, there are often classes that need to be taken, workshops that need to be done, hours of completion where you are learning about consent, 
boundaries, how to hear no, how to say no, how to ask for what you need, and how to get help if you are in an uh, experience that is not consensual or if it's something that uh, wasn't agreed upon that's not consensual or anything else, you know where to go for support and to you, you have an idea of what steps to take next. Why don't we teach that to our children about their relationships with people, period? So now, like, being in this space and understanding that, there are so many aspects of BDSM that ought to be integrated into STD prevention efforts because that stems into adolescent sex education. Mm -hmm. So now we're talking about those boundaries and relationship management um, skills. I want to call them skills. And the BDSM community is such a great example that we should all be learning from. They have great tools that they use on the regular basis that um, we could all learn. Yeah, we, we got like eight minutes. So is there anything else that you want to close out with? Obviously, we want people to check out your podcast. Yeah, go check out my podcast, Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators. Now that we got our name right. I was about to mix it up. I was like, yeah, I want to leave with vulvas. <laughs> But uh, yeah, um, check that out. It's available on podcast players, iTunes, Apple Spotify. Podcasts, Spotify. iHeartRadio. iHeartRadio. Are you on yeah. there too? That took a minute. Like that process was so long. I forgot I sent it in when I did it at first. I, I they sent me an email like two months later. It was like, hey, congratulations. Your podcast has been approved. But yeah, you can listen to that wherever you download podcasts. How can people find you on social media? You can find me at Jordan Donnell, J-O-R-D-A-N. D-N-E-L-L-E on Instagram and Facebook. All right, I will put that in the show notes as well. Jordan was someone who helped me with this survey also. She took it and gave me a little bit of feedback, so I want to shout you out and thank you for that. Um, I don't know like where to put people's names who helped me with the survey. I know I said I wanted to give y'all credit, so I guess I'm going to have to interview everybody that did something <laughs> and give y'all credit that way, but I'm very appreciative of you having taken that time, especially with so much going on you produce and host your own podcast you've got coaching you've got um you've got work work and you manage to pencil me in among all your traveling because you be all over the place always (laughs) traveling getting into something yeah all right well um thank you thank you so much for your energy thank you for your time and putting your story out here and being a touch point in the medical community I try so hard to make it through without having to do that. It's still early here, but we we made it through, y'all. We made it. Yes. <laughs> you made it as well. But um, yeah, thank you. Just just thank you. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and I appreciate the work that you do in the community. That uh, it's been amazing. <clears throat> All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to this podcast. okay it's just oh my god anyways (laughs) subscribe listen share um we're making that transition into the medical community it's not really a transition but like with the credibility with having gotten people therapy thank you all so much for the donations um having more than two three dozen i think maybe 30 to 50 people now that 30 to 50 is super broad 
uh, let me see, group therapy, 12, the other group therapy, 24, the individuals, there was 12-ish last year, 30. So roughly 40 people have gotten therapy as a result of the efforts that have been put into uh, something positive for positive people from the community itself and from our supporters. Thank you to the sex educators, the therapists, the organizations, the individuals, everyone who's just invested their energy into this. And especially those who've taken the survey. I said it on a few other podcast episodes. Y'all got me feeling like King Leonidas from 300. Like we got 1,148 people to lead a charge through the stigma, aka the Trojans. And we made it back though. Like not not those 300 died. We made it back. <laughs> but we are the ones who led that charge and we made we are making a dent. Um Vice magazine reached out and I shared the information with them. Um we also had um someone I've got a presentation at the Michigan HIV and STI conference 2021 talking about integrating post STI diagnosis support resources with STD prevention efforts and what that looks like because I want like STD prevention shouldn't even be a thing we're never going to prevent STDs we need to focus on minimization so that's where my efforts have shifted when it comes to the medical community we're still adding people to support groups building relationships getting people People therapy, group therapy as well, recruiting therapists. So send me your rates. And if you do any sort of group support, uh, call if you do any sort of peer led support and you're a licensed, ooh, I forgot the language I need to use, but yeah, if you're someone who, so I can't call it group therapy because it's across state lines. So it has to be peer led support, peer support led by a licensed mental health professional. Something along those lines. Yeah, we find in all the loopholes. And remember, your donations are tax write-offs. So if you need a therapist and right now yours is expensive and you're hearing this ad, hit me up because we can funnel that through. I don't want to say funnel. Wow, that sounds illegal. You can donate to us because what we do is pay for people's therapy. And it's all donation-based. So whatever you give, contribute. Um It'll be paid forward as well as with you. So you can visit www.spfpp.org for more information. Till next time, stay sex positive.